I just got the, uh, the feedback from the uh, one minute things just a few minutes before class, so I think I may defer commenting on a couple of them at the beginning of next uh, lecture. But there are a couple of things that I can, I think I can say. One is several people were wondering how does, how does the cell decide whether to, to uh, do mitosis or meiosis. But the mitosis, which is ordinary cell division, is, is what happens everywhere in your body, in your intestine, on your skin, in your eye, anywhere uh, except, uh, you know, since that's how you make all the different cells that we have. My, the meiosis, which, which uh, creates these sex cells or gametes, happens in a very specific place, either in the testes if you're a male or in the ovary if you're a, a female. So there's a, a dedicated place where meio meiosis takes place, and you can just your knowledge of human anatomy and physiology can make a pretty good guess as to where that is. So everywhere else, it's mitosis. There's a very special place where that where that happens. Um, a couple of you still got confused when I um, when I was talking about uh, meiosis, and I was showing you a progression through, and I put a double-headed arrow to to meaning. That was what that period was called. Don't confuse it. That the process is unidirectional. It only goes in one way. It's not a reversible, not a reversible process. There were some questions about the chiasmata, or the chiasma. Um, why is there a crossover in the chiasma in meiosis but not in mitosis? I will tell you about that today very specifically. Um, why was there a tall and a short pair of chromosomes? That was arbitrary. I made up a simple cell for us to consider these properties in, one with a long and one with a short. Nothing else. I don't, wasn't trying to represent any particular organism. And I'll pick up on a couple of other things. I just want to quickly just mention something. Since I've seen you, I flew out to San, Francisco, to San Diego, gave a talk yesterday morning in a major meeting, hopped on a plane, got back at midnight, and here I am again. There's a part of being a, a scientist come teacher at a place like MIT that you guys tend not to see, but my life, research life goes on while I'm teaching. And I just wanted to briefly mention one thing I talked about yesterday, because just in my own life, it captures a couple of the things that, that uh, I've been trying to tell you, that the textbook is not the ultimate authority, that's, that's just what we think up till today. A new finding can change the way you, you think about things, and what I'm telling you, and some of you are frustrated at that I'm not just parroting back the textbook, is because this is the way it is, and if you guys are going to be leaders in whatever field you're in, you're going to be dealing with this process of shifting sands as we gain new knowledge. So, in fact, what I was talking about has some relationship to the cell cycle that I talked about, that uh, work of Lee Hartwell particularly helped us understand that there's a there's a what's called a G1 phase, which is you could think of as a preparation for DNA synthesis. There's what's known as the S phase, where DNA synthesis actually occurs. And now you're at 4N, you've doubled the DNA content, and there's G2, where it sort of cleans up from S phase, gets ready for, my, for mitosis, and mitosis is when you then separate the daughter chromatids, you go back to 2N, and then ultimately the cell divides, and we're back to 2N. And when we were talking about DNA replication, I told you how DNA polymerases, the replicative DNA polymerases, test for Watson Crick shape and the little movie I showed you where they flip the base pair into a very narrow slot in the protein and they check that it's there. And I said at that time that 
Uh, that's why replica polymerases have a problem when they hit a lesion, such as a thymine dimer that we get when we go out in the sun. And then one of the thing, recent pieces of excitement in the DNA repair field that I work in was the discovery of a whole class of translesion DNA polymerases that are very flexible active sites and are able to copy over a lesion. So right at this point, uh, you will find in the literature all sorts of reviews about polymerase switching, where people are envisioning uh, the replicate of polymerase coming along. It hits a lesion, it gets stuck, it recruits one of these translesion polymerases that comes in, copies over the lesion, it switches back to the re replicate of polymerase, and on it goes. And there are reviews like that coming out in, um, in the literature. So one of the genes that's needed for this sort of error-prone kind of translation synthesis in yeast and in humans is a gene called Rev1. You don't have to know this for the exam, this bit. <laughs> uh, but if you knock out the function of that gene, the, the yeast aren't mutated by UV or chemicals anymore. So you know it has an essential function somehow in this, in this process of translation synthesis. So one of our big surprises was I was trying, we were actually trying to fish out partners that might interact with it because we thought it would be regulated. And we found, to our surprise, something, the experiments revealed something we hadn't expected. We found out that this protein that was critical for mutagenesis was extremely strongly cell cycle regulated. Well, given the reviews I've told you, or if somebody were writing a textbook today, this is what they tell you, polymerase switching during S phase, so you might have thought that it would be high in S phase. But it isn't. We can barely detect it during S phase, but instead, the Rev1 levels are at least 50 times uh, in, in the G2M phase. Actually, it's, it goes right through this part of, of the cell cycle. 50 times what they are during, uh, during S phase. And so there's a couple of possibilities right now. Either these very tiny amounts that are doing S phase are what everybody thinks in the current models would predict you're getting polymerase switching, and it makes 50-fold more during this phase for something else. If so, I don't know what that is. The other possibility is we have to rethink our model, and that the, it isn't polymerase switching during replication. It's actually the, the replication fork just keeps moving, and it leaves behind little messes. And when the cell is busy starting to line up those chromosomes, and even while it's pulling them apart, that's when this, this translation synthesis stuff comes in and it cleans up the damage. Now, I don't know what the right answer is. That was one of the things I was talking about yesterday morning, but it's an example of how something that you guys can now, I hope, at least understand in principle is you know, being debated right now and the finding from my lab changed the way I've been thinking about it, at least. I can now see another very real possibility. Okay, so... Just to uh, move on, so we're going back to Mendel now, who did an awful lot more than I told you. A few of you thought it was pretty frustrating you had all of that. Uh, but Mendel was doing other things. You already know what he could do. He knew how to do crosses, he knew how to count, and he could think, which is really important. And he saw ratios instead of just, just numbers. So it was another class of experiment he could do, and that was he could do a cross where he looked at more than one trait at once. And he didn't have all that many options for things he could do, but he, he did what are known as dihybrid crosses. And 
where he followed two traits at once. And I showed you some of the, the traits that, um, that he, he studied. In fact, that picture I showed you is actually uh, a, tr uh, a cross that we could think of right now. He's got s smooth and yellow and smooth and smooth wrinkled and green and yellow, and you'll see them in all four uh, combinations. So um, one, an example of a kind of cross that, that Mendel carried out then was he took smooth yellow, which actually is the dominant allele in both, which he learned from his other crosses, and he crossed it with wrinkled green, which I'll re represent as a little s, little s, uh, little y, little y, where he'd previously known the, the little s and little y alleles, the, the wrinkled and green were the recessive alleles. And then the F1 generation wouldn't be surprising to you at this point. I think that they were all smooth yellow. And they all were SSYY. And if you think about the possible gametes you could get out of this, you could only get a big S, big Y out of this one, and a little S, little Y out of that one. So if they came together, it would have to be, have to be that. So then when he um, did the uh, self, he now self-crossed the F1. And what, it, what he got out of that was the kind of mixture of things that uh, he saw up there. He saw smooth yellow, smooth green, wrinkled yellow, and wrinkled green. In doing the same kind of experiments that we, we talked about before, he counted them, he looked to see if he saw characteristic ratios, he did. The ratios he saw were 9 to 3 to 3 to 1. So. I think he knew how, he, how his head worked at this point, trying to figure out if he could explain this, uh, these results by the kind of uh, model that he was developing where hereditary information came in, um, in particles, and he could, but he had to, do, had to make a critical assumption. And if you've just seen the the next square I'm going to draw without realizing the, this assumption underlies it, then you've missed a great deal of the point of his, of his thinking. And that was that the, t the two genes assort, or the two traits anyway, say the two traits, because he didn't know they were genes yet. independently. And um, a way we could uh, see that would be to think about what were the kind of alleles that you could, the kind of gametes that you could make from from those F1s. So we could get a big S, 
and a big Y from here, or a big S and a little Y, or a little S and a big Y, or a little S and a little Y. And since this is selfing, it's the same thing. So I won't fill this whole thing in, but we, we get two S's, two big Y's here. Um, down here, we'd have little s, little y like that. I'll fill in a couple of here where we've got big S, um, big S, big Y, little y. Here we'd have big S, big S, but two little y's. Here we'd have big S, little s, big y, little y. And over here, we'd have big S, little s, two little y's. So if you were to make out then I'm a table or a chart like this that showed the phenotypes, you'll find that all of these look uh, wild type. We can see it here. However, this one would be smooth, but it's got the two alleles, so it would be green. This one would be smooth and yellow, and this again would be smooth but green. And down in this corner is the wrinkled green. And if you follow that uh, out dry with the rest of that, you'll discover there are the 9 to 3 to 3 to 1 ratios. That was what Mendel observed in all of his experiments. Um, but there was a pro and he wasn't particularly bothered by it because he'd shown particulate information. The fact they were sorted randomly uh, wasn't an issue. However, uh, that was before people knew about chromosomes, which we spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about on uh, the other day, and as I said, when people saw those chromosomes, that gave rise to what's known as the chromosomal theory of inheritance. And what was interesting about the chromosomal theory of inheritance is that uh, it predicted a different outcome, depending on whether the traits you were studying were encoded by genes on the same chromosome or by genes on different chromosomes. Now, as it happened, what I think Mendel did was he found traits that were well-behaved and he could, could study, and those all happened to be on separate chromosomes. So his results didn't disclose this, uh, uh, this issue that was, that was raised by the uh, chromosomal discovery of Chromosomes, but let me—they have different. The chromosomal theory of inheritance um, gives different, as I say, different predicts different outcomes depending whether things are on the same or different uh, chromosomes. So let's uh, consider that by taking the F1. So let's say say they're on separate chromosomes. And let's take the F1 from the previous uh, cross over here. So big S, little s, big y, big y, little y. And then we'll cross it with the homozygous recessive parent. That was a cross that I mentioned in the first lecture. It was very important. It's important enough it's given a special name. It's called a test cross. Well, here we are using it here. Well, what are the, what are the possible outcomes that could come uh, from this sort of thing. Well, what sort of, I think the way you could think about it most easily is what kind of gametes or sex cells 
could we get out of this? Well, from here, we could get a big S and a, um, a big Y, or we could get a big S and a little Y, a little S and a big Y, or a little S and a little Y. So we could get four different types of sex cells. The gametes we could, we could get out of this sign, there's only one type. So if we start combining those, I think you can see what the outcome would be. Um, it's so simple, we don't even need to draw out the square that if we had big S, big Y over, they're all going to be over. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, I'll draw them this way because I think it's a little easier to see. So there would be four possible uh, things that would come out of this test cross. This would be the smooth and yellow. Here would be, what have I done wrong here? Oh, no, that's right. Uh, this would be smooth and green. This would be wrinkled and yellow. And this would be wrinkled and green. And you see what the ratio would be? It would be one to one to one to one because we have an equal probability of making any of those. Uh, and I'm going to rearrange these because in a way that will help us think about it. This is one of the, the, the types that we found in the original cross. That's a parental phenotype, smooth and yellow. It was one of the parents up there. This is the other one that looks like one of the original parents. So I'm, I can divide these into parental or non-parental phenotypes. These are one to one, and then these others were ones that the, where the progeny differed from uh, the parent, and they're all one to one to one to one. Now that's what the chromosomal theory of inheritance would predict if they were on separate chromosomes. That's what Mendel saw when he was doing his crosses. But what if the what if they were on the same chromosome? So we're going to have to go back to the original cross now to, to think this one through. So what, uh, what Mendel started with was a smooth yellow parent. So that was SY, SY. But because these are on the same chromosome, I'm going to, have, I'm going to depict them this way so we can see they're going to travel as a unit most of the time. So, and that was then crossed with the wrinkled green, which would be a little s, little y in each case linkage. The F1, in this case, will be all smooth and yellow. The recessive traits disappear. But this time, they're only uh, what the progeny will have. They will have gotten one of the possible alleles from this one, which would be the SY on the same chromosome and one from the other parent, the little s, little y, again, on the same chromosome. So now if you start to ask, 
what will happen if I do a test cross, you're going to get a different outcome. So here's the test cross in this case. So we've got this F1, it's smooth and yellow, but it's actually at the chromosomal level now, or the, it's like this, and we're crossing it with the homozygous recessive parent that's now going to, to look like that. So if you think through what kind of gametes could we get out of this, well, there's only two possibilities. We can get this one or this one. And over here, the kind of gametes we could get, there's only one type. So what are we going to get out of this cross? What, what we'll end up getting is big SY over the little sy, or little sy over the little sy like, like that. That's smooth and yellow. This is wrinkled in green. The ratio of these are one to one. But you see the difference from what we saw before. These are the parental phenotypes They don't get any non, the chromosomal theory of inheritance doesn't predict um, that you'll get any, or predicts that you will not get the non-parental phenotypes. So if you wanted to distinguish between these two hypotheses and figure out where your, your genes were, you do the experiment. And what happened when this was done is, again, what often happens in science, you think you've got it straightened out, you've got hypothesis A and hypothesis B, and you do experiment planning to do the scientific method and show it, and you get a result that isn't what you expected with either model. And that's, in fact, what happened in this case, and it led to the discovery of uh, genetic recombination. And to, to show you, actually, the experiments where that was discovered, I'm going to switch to another widely used genetic model, which is the Drosophila melanogaster, or the fruit fly, which you see in the summer on, around rotting fruit, or if you're in the biology building, one is apt to land on your sandwich, because there are always a few the stragglers that get out of the, uh, the Drosophila genetics labs. But the one thing you can see from this is the eye is pretty cool. It's got red, the wild type is a red eye, and the body's uh, brown. And you can see the red eyes if you look at a fruit fly carefully. You'll be able to see uh, just this summer. If you take a look, you'll see that they have red eyes. So they've been a, a very uh, useful model organism for genetics, partly because they grow pretty fast and they're, they're uh, easy to, to handle in a lab. And so um, I'll introduce you to a couple of features. So the, uh, the, the wild type you find in nature. The body, it's a brown body, I'll call that plus, and it has normal wings, and which I'll, I'll refer to as, as plus, and a, some mutant phenotypes that geneticists have been able to find is a black body, which I'll refer to as little b, and vestigial wings. I'll refer to as 
as um, VG. So these are fairly easy to score. They look like sort of little, little tiny wings. And so it's fairly easy if you're crossing uh, Drosophila and then looking at progeny to go through and score what color are their eyes and do they have ordinary wings or little wings. So this is the kind of cross uh, that was carried out and we're going to switch now to an organism that has male and female. Up till now, plants are, are both. They make pollen and they uh, have the, the eggs that are going to develop into the seeds once they're fertilized. But uh, Drosophila are more like us. They come in males and females. So we're going to have to specify uh, which, is, which is which. And I think probably most of you are familiar with this, term this terminology. This is female. Some, the symbol genetics is used for female, and this is the one that you, is used for male. So in this case, let's, let's set up exactly the same kind of thing that we start here. We're going to cross a homozygous uh, dominant parent versus a homozygous recessive parent. That's just exactly the kind of thing we're up here, but I'm going to do it this time using sort of Drosophila genetics speak. And so we'll be taking a female who's wild type for, for both traits. We're going to cross with a male that's homozygous recessive for both traits. This is the way Drosophila geneticists tend to represent this kind of thing. So it's exactly the same kind of cross that we've got before. And at this point, what, what we get out of the F1 um, uh, it shouldn't be news for you. You can see genetically what it's going to be. They'll have to get one allele from here and one allele from there. So by definition, the only possibilities you can get out of this, the, the F1s will all have one allele for dominant and a recessive allele, just like, just like up there. And so this will be, since the wild type is the dominant allele, this will be brown and normal normal wings. And then uh, at this point, they then set up, we'll set up a test cross, exactly the same idea. We're going to take the F1 and in this case we'll take a female who's got this and we'll cross her with a male who's homozygous recessive, so that'll be black over black and vestigial over vestigial. And out of this, there are four possibilities. We can get the parental phenotypes. Um, so there will be, from that, uh, black over, uh, if, if you look through the various combinations, of uh, how these things could go together, you'll find we can get vestigial plus, or we can get black over black and vestigial over vestigial. For example, this one coming from those two getting together, and this one coming from this one and this one uh, getting together. So this is just exactly the same kind of thing we've done, but done using Drosophila traits, and then non-parental. So now we'd get, for example, black over black and vestigial over plus. So this would be 
black but normal wings, or we could have black over plus, vestigial over vestigial, which would be a brown body, but with vestigial wings. So if we were trying to, doing, we're doing this kind of cross, and we're trying to see what the outcome would be, uh, the Mendel, every trait assorts independently, would predict the one-to-one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one -to -one, and the uh, chromosomal theory of inheritance would predict we'd get one-to-one -one here, and we wouldn't see those at all. Now, instead, what happened when this experiment was done were uh, numbers that didn't really fit. This part worked pretty well. These are numbers from from an, uh, an experiment of this type. So these are pretty close to one-to-one. -to -one. That's okay, that fits with, with both of the models. The surprise was over here, where there's two over six to, to 185. So these are in the ballpark of one-to-one, -one, but what you can see is the result is not what was predicted by either model. This is the kind of thing I've sort of been trying to tell you through the course keeps happening in biology, it's not a QED sort of thing where you can work it out by logic. Very often when you do an experiment, you get a result that doesn't fit within your current framework and then you have to go back and redo your, your thinking. But what was going on here, as it turned out, and it all got sorted out, was uh, scientists had just discovered genetic recombination. And here's where it was, it, what was going on. So when we talked about meiosis one, and we had duplicated the DNA, so we now had two chromatids. And I showed you this chiasmata, a chiasma. When it was, was drying, it looked sort of like this. And I said that you always saw these physical attachments, that once the homologous pairs were duplicated, they would always be in contact. And I said there was actually a, a physical interaction going on there. Well, what was going on in there was uh, an exchange, a recombinational event at the DNA level that's just exactly equivalent to the, what was happening when I showed you the phage cross. Remember, we had a phage cross, and we, if we got a recombination in between the two genes, then we could get uh, progeny that were a mixture of the, of, the, of the two traits. So if we were plus plus, for example, these were on the same chromosome, and the other one was like this, black, vestigial, black, and vestigial, if we get a genetic recombination going on here where these two intersect and, and recombine in between these two genes, what you get out of that then is this chromatid is still the same. It's got both wild type alleles. But in this case now, the, the black gene has, the black allele has moved from here to the tip of this one, pairing it with that. And the other chromatid over here of the other homologous pair now has the plus together with the vestigial and then here. So if you 
then draw out the possible gametes. One will have look like one parent, one will look like the other parent. This one can give rise to a non-parental phenotype in a, in a test cross, and that one can give rise to a non-parental phenotype in a, in a test cross. And that's what's going on in, uh, in the, this experiment I've described. But the nice thing about this, since uh, this sort of thing is happening, is one can ca calculate then a recombination frequency. in just the same way that we calculated it when we were doing uh, phage cross. And in this case, it was the recombinance, which in this context I'm referring to as the non-parentals. The recombinance over the total of the parental types and the non-parental. So in this case, this would be 206 plus 185 over 965 plus 944 plus 206 plus 185. And if I haven't blown the arithmetic, that would be a recombination frequency of 17%. Now, when we were back talking about that phage cross. Remember, we, we did a pair of, of crosses between gene one and two and between two and three, and then we were trying to figure out how those could, how, if they were on, in a linear order, how we could explain it, and we finally worked out the order by crossing allele one and three. And we made a little genetic map that could show uh, the order of gene one, two, and three based on nothing more than the recombination frequency. So that's exactly what people were able to do by this kind, of, this kind of measurement. And that then led to the generation of chromosome maps. Uh, this is a publication from Science in 1994. This was before the human genome was done. And they were using a, a mapping a kind of, of uh, genetic marker we'll talk about but we do restriction enzymes, but they were able to associate it with banding patterns they had seen on the, on the chromosome. This is the sort of thing the cytologists saw, and as um, scientists were, were working this out, then they uh, were able to associate these genetic maps of loci and, and begin to associate them with the physical maps of, binding, of, um, of banding patterns and chromosomes. Now we have the sort of ultimate genetic map, which is the sequence of the human chromosome. So now we know exactly to the base pair how far different genes are. But the part of the way that the human uh, genome was assembled from all these little tiny fragments of DNA that were sequenced were taking advantage of these kind of maps that told the scientists assembling all these little fragments of DNA sequence what order they had to be in what part of the chromosome they were on and that kind of thing. Um, there is, uh, this then leads us though to an, another issue since I've now started to, to talk about chromosomes and oh, one more thing, let me just say before I, I leave this. So from this kind of thing, if the recombination frequency is much less than 50%, then they're on the same chromosome 
And the word geneticists use to describe this is they say the genes are linked. If the recombination frequency is, is 50%, then they're on different chromosomes at this point. It's just random assortment. Go one way or the other, so you get a number of 50% if you do this kind of calculation. And these are referred to as unlinked. And those of you who are thinking about it can probably imagine that there, there might be a problem that if you had a very long chromosome, so the two genes you were studying were very far apart, you might get so many recombination events in between that it would begin to look, the recombination frequency might be 50, come close to 50%, and you would perhaps have a difficult time in that genetic cross telling whether the genes are really unlinked, they were on separate chromosomes, or they were linked but, but very far apart. So this kind of thing be a little hard to, to resolve that kind of situation. But there are other things you can do to look at that. So the chromosomes we've been talking about are what are known as autosomes. These are identical pairs. But there's an exception. And those are the genes that are involved in sex determination. It's the chromosomes that are involved in sex determination. These are known as heterosomes. And they're on this picture that I showed you where they use this technique of, of um, chromosome painting to show it. You can see how uh, that all, the, all these Autosomes are in identical pairs, but this is a male, obviously, because there's the Y chromosome and there's an X. And if you're a female, you'd have two copies of the X, something I think most of you know. So, so the, if we think about the, uh, how this works in humans, females have an X, two Xs, and uh, males have an X and a Y. In Drosophila, the fruit fly, it's the same thing. Males have two X, females have two X's, and males have an XY. But there isn't anything magic in nature about women having two, of the, females having two of the same, and and males having one of uh, one of each. Because in birds, where it's different enough, they use different notation. The females have. One of, uh, one of each, and I'll make sure I got my notation right, I think, Z and ZZ, excuse me. The males have two, and the females have, have one of each. So the, nature tends to use these, these differences to, as part of sex determination. But this then poses a new kind of problem, and that is, what would happen if you were doing a cross and the allele that you were studying happened to be on a sex chromosome instead of one of these. You might guess that since females have two of one and males have one of, one of each, that it would not give the results that are predicted uh, by here, by, by what we've talked about so far. And so, in fact, this led to the discovery of what's known as sex linkage, and that's important. And in fact, as you'll see in a minute, affects stuff that we're familiar with in our lives. So I want to just quickly introduce you to this and show you how it was, uh, how it was discovered. 
This was done by Thomas Morgan in 1910, actually, this discovery. What he was doing was he took a white-eyed male, crossed it with a red-eyed female, female wild type, and he got the expected result that the, uh, the F1s were all red-eye. But then when he took the F1 female, and, which was red, and crossed it with a red-eyed male, he got something that was, was very puzzling at the time. The females were all red. The males, half of them had red eyes, and half of them had white eyes. Now, if you've followed the logic up till now, or you were to try and work this out, you would find you couldn't generate this pattern by the stuff that we've talked about now. So once again, this led to uh, the need to create a new model, something that expanded our thinking. So the way the thinking went was, well, there must be something to do with, with uh, the sex of the fruit fly in this. And so here was the, the hypothesis, and that was that the white-eyed male had this, this genotype. They, they had an allele of the that caused the white eyeness, but it was located on the X chromosome. So the male would have had a white, uh, Y chromosome paired with that. And the red-eyed female used in the, in the first cross would have a wild-type allele on both X, uh, on both X uh, chromosomes. And so if that were... If that were the, the model, what's going to happen then when we do this, this cross that we've described here? Well, let's, let's think it through. So we've got female who's X plus, X plus. We're cro crossing with the male that's got the X with the white allele over the Y. So the, the females can either be, they, they'll get an X plus XW, and the males, this minute, um, yeah, right, the males are going to get, uh, they will get this allele for Y. So now, if he takes this red-eyed uh, red female, that was the F1, from the, the cross up here, which will be like this, and crossed with a red-eyed male. Now, that, the, that means the male has to have the good allele. What are, we going to, what are we going to get? Well, for the females in this cross, we've got a couple of possibilities. This, this one, we could get just the, the wild-type female back. Or we could get this one pairing with this one, which will give us this. So this is, these, are, these are all red that fit. But the males then, if you see what happens, they have to have, each have to have a Y. And then they can either get this allele or that allele. If they get this allele, they're red. 
with this allele, they're white. And if you stand back and, and look at that, you'll see that is the outcome that was observed. Females were all red, the males half red, half, half white. Well, this is a characteristic of, a, of what's, this would be an X-linked trait. And I want to just point out one thing. This, this female, excuse me, wrong, wrong female. This female here is what's referred to as a carrier. She, she's got this allele that causes the white eye, but she's not expressing it herself. But she's able to transmit it to her sons. And when she transmits, when she has progeny, on average, half of her sons will have, uh, will have the trait. You know, X-linked traits are common. There are a number of them that we know about. Uh, some of you may know hemophilia. Queen Victoria was a carrier of this gene that causes hemophilia, where there's a problem with the clotting mechanism. And if you get a cut, then you can bleed a lot. So her, some of her, her sons had, had this. A more common one, which has to apply to some people in this room, is red-green color blindness. Uh, if you're a male, you have a, a much higher probability of, of, uh, of being colorblind because it, it's an excellent trait. And I want to just close by showing you how human geneticists think about this sort of thing. And it's, we have to think about things differently if we're doing human genetics because as most of you know, I think all of us would be very uncooperative subjects in a kind of genetic cross that a uh, a fruit fly geneticist or a mouse geneticist would uh, like to have us do, in which we'd be put in a cage with one other, with a member of the other sex and say, mate, <laughs> that was your choice in, in life. Well, that would be a different kind of existence for its all. So human geneticists don't have that luxury of having pure breeding strains and doing controlled crosses. We all have very uh, strong feelings about the kind of crosses that we want to engage in. And so, and so um, what they have to do, they have to make use with what they find. And, and they use a few, couple of symbols here that I'll just show you. They look at pedigrees, and then they look for patterns. And they use a little shorthand for doing this. Uh, males are squares, which I don't know if there's any symbolism to that or not. But if they're affected, they show it as a shaded square and unaffected as an open symbol. So affected males are solid squares, affected females solid circles. So let's take a look at the sort of thing that a human a pedigree that a human geneticist might see and let's consider something, let's think about red-green color blindness which is an X-linked trait. So let's take a male, which there's probably one in this room at least, maybe more, who have this. So since the Colorblindness trait is on the uh, X chromosome. Since he's a male, the other pair will be Y. That means the, if you're a male and you've got it, you're going to display the phenotypes. This is uh, George, let's say, who was <laughs> colorblind. They, they leave a lot of the romance out of these things, as you'll see. Uh, who then uh, had progeny with uh, Mary, let's say. They got married after they graduated from MIT. He was very happy. They had. Uh, they had a, uh, let's see, they had a son who got, uh, he had to get the Y from dad, so he had to get a good allele from, uh, from his mother. 
but they also had a daughter, and uh, she got had to get the color blindness allele on an X chromosome because her dad only had one of them, and then a good one from from her mom. So at this point, uh, everybody's normal, but you'll notice what this daughter has this trait of being a carrier because she's, even though she doesn't display the trait herself, she's, she's got it uh, in, in, her, in her genome. So let's say this son then marries, they have uh, a woman who has, doesn't have any colorblindness alleles. So if we have, let's say, a daughter, a son, a daughter, and a son, this is a, not much happening over in this part of the pedigree. Everybody would be uh, normal. Yeah, did I miss something? Pardon? What's over Y? Excuse me. Yep, going too fast here. Over Y. There we go. I don't need to <laughs> introduce any genetic abnormalities on top of, of what we've already tried to do here. This is complicated enough. Okay, so, but what happens, let's say then that the... Um, daughter and then married uh, a guy and they had four children and I'm going to help us with the genetics, I'm going to, this is from the geneticist, the, the sort of perfect family in this case would be four kids representing all four uh, possibilities and so um, so first off let's think what would happen if with, with the, the daughters, well the daughters could either uh, have the color blindness allele paired with this one um, or they could get uh, the wild type allele with this one so I said better put this in as a daughter so this would be CB over plus or it could be plus over plus this one would again be a carrier um, now, with the sons, they're both going to get the Y if they're, since they're male, but there's a possibility of either getting the good allele, which means he'll be unaffected, but if you get the other one, he'll be affected. Now, this would be a sort of typical pedigree, and you realize, depending on the number of kids, you might or might not see this. But this, you're going to get to do some more of these and to do some other traits. But let me just sort of point out, if you're a human geneticist, what you would recognize here. The traits more frequent in males, the frequency of colorblindness is about 8% on the X chromosome. So if you're female, you've got to have two of them. That, so that means you've got 0.64% because you've got to get two together. It's a much smaller probability. The trait skips a generation, they often say. You see it here, you see it here, but you don't see it in between, and that's because you have this this uh, carrier, um, the affected males uh, don't transmit to their sons because what they give to their sons is the Y, so they can't give him the color blindness thing. And then the heterozygous females who are carriers will transmit the trait to their sons, but only but half the time. And that's a pattern that a human geneticist would look for and they'd say, aha, must be a sex-linked trait, and you'll see in your problem sets and recitation sections other patterns. Okay? We'll see you on Friday.